I'm Lister Sinclair. Tonight's Ideas programme on Harold Innes was originally broadcast last fall. He was a man, I think, who always questioned authority and conventional wisdom. And when I interviewed his students 40 years after they studied with him, many of them will always say the same thing. He taught us to look behind appearances and to see what the real forces were and not to have a blind faith in one story or another. He was always searching. He never thought he'd got the final answers. And he never wanted people simply to accept what he'd said. He wanted them to go on thinking things out for themselves. His life was one long search. Harold Innes has always been something of a Canadian hero. When CBC Radio remembered him in 1972, 20 years after his death, the tribute was simply called Innes of Canada. A raw Ontario farm boy, as his British-born colleague Vincent Bladen described him, he rose to become the first Canadian head of the Department of Political Economy at the University of Toronto. His books on the fur trade and the cod fisheries investigated the ways in which Canada's very existence had been shaped and coloured by the staple products it produced for world markets, from fish, furs and timber to wheat, metals and wood pulp. Later in his career, he broadened his view of economics to include mental as well as physical factors of production. In works like Empire and Communications and The Bias of Communication, he explored the relationship between the structure of communication and the structure of consciousness. From hieroglyphics laboriously chiseled into stone tablets in ancient Egypt to the mass media of his own day. By the time he died in 1952, his reputation as a scholar extended throughout the English-speaking world. This year is the 100th anniversary of Harold Innes's birth. The occasion has been marked by conferences in Innes's honour across the country. Tonight on Ideas, David Cayley joins the celebration with the first of three programmes on Innes's contribution to Canadian letters. In subsequent shows, he'll explore Innes's pioneering work in communications, his philosophy of knowledge, and his passionate commitment to the civilizing influence of universities. Tonight, in his first program, David Cayley looks at the influences that formed Innes's thought and at Innes's studies in economics. Harold Adams Innes was born on a farm near Otterville in southwestern Ontario on November 5, 1894. His father's family descended from a British veteran of the American Revolutionary War who had been granted land in New Brunswick. His mother belonged to the first Canadian generation of a Scots family called Adams. The farm was the first great influence on the young boy. It gave him a lifelong capacity for hard work, and it gave him the naturalist's eye and the feeling for practical details that later marked so much of his scholarship. Another great influence was the Baptist church to which his grandfather had converted. The Baptists combined a stern morality and strict religious observances with a radical theology, which emphasized the priesthood of all believers, freedom to interpret scripture in one's own way, and the renewal of faith in each generation through the practice of adult baptism. Innes eventually disappointed his parents' hopes that he would take up the Baptist ministry, 
but he retained in his character this powerful combination of moral rectitude and imaginative freedom. Innes's education began in nearby Otterville, but by the time he was 13, he had exhausted the resources of the small Otterville High School, and his parents, with some sacrifice, sent him on to the collegiate in Woodstock. His university education took place at McMaster, a small Baptist university which was then in Toronto. While he was at McMaster, war broke out in Europe, and as soon as he completed his course, he enlisted in the Canadian Army. I think you will agree with me, he wrote to his sister, that I am taking the only step I possibly could and have any faith in Christianity. By the fall, he was pinned down in the trenches of northeastern France in conditions of cold, wet, and terrifying immobility. The only way this country could be muddier, he wrote to his mother, would be to be bigger. Nine months later, at Vimy Ridge, he was wounded in the knee. It was the kind of wound his fellow soldiers called a blighty, serious enough to get you out of the war, not serious enough to kill you. He required a long convalescence and the aid of a walking stick, but by the end of March 1918, he was home. The war affected Harold Innes in many ways. He had felt he was acting as a Christian. What he had seen was the youth of whole nations led like lambs into an endless, meaningless, mechanized slaughter. The experience destroyed his faith and attuned him for the rest of his life to the sinister possibilities of modern industrial technique. Economist Ian Parker of the University of Toronto is a close student of Innes's work. He believes the war left permanent traces on a sensitive imagination with a powerful recall. When Innes was talking about the brain drain from Canada just after the Second World War, he spoke about Canada being a headless nation with its brains scattered across other countries. Now, in fact, that was written in 1946, just after the Second World War. But in the First World War, when Innes was wounded, he wrote in his illegal war diary about the experience of seeing a plane crash and seeing the pilot there with his head basically spread all over and brains all over the cockpit. And that he wrote down some 30 years later. He pulled back that image as a graphic way of talking about Canada as a nation. The idea that the war affected the deep structure of Innes' imagination is confirmed by a number of passages in his writings. It has not been long, he said in 1936, since most of us who served have been awakened by nightmares of intense shellfire. And even now, the military bands played with such enthusiasm by young men are intolerable, and Armistice Day celebrations are emotionally impossible. During the Second War, he described himself in a confidential memorandum to the president of the University of Toronto as a psychological as well as a physical casualty of the last war. His son Hugh recalls his father going blocks out of the way to avoid the sound of bagpipes. The war, Hughinus says, was the beast that always waited at the other end of his father's way. This is also the view of John Watson, the author of Marginal Man, the most thorough biographical study that has so far been made of Harold Innes. 
It was done as a PhD thesis at the University of Toronto and remains, unfortunately, unpublished. Watson is now the executive director of Care Canada. What happened to Innes uh, was what happened to a lot of uh, trench soldiers and indeed what happens to anybody who has lived under conditions where they have very, very little in the way of uh, personal margin for getting out of a horrible situation. In other words, uh, it's a context where people are under threat of death from external forces, in this case art artillery and machine guns, and they can't do anything about it. They've simply got to, in the case of the First World War, cower in their trenches and put up with the bombardments. Now, in the First World War, uh, there was also something that exaggerated that effect, and that was that people went to that war out of ideals, the feeling that they were defending Christian civilization, defending democracy, ideals which are hard for us to appreciate because we live in a much more cynical age. So it was a situation in which people going into something with the best intentions, with the best ideals, in fact, found themselves in a, an absolutely horrific context. And really, the understanding that they had of what they were going off to do was turned upside down. John Watson believes that the shock and horror of the war left in a subject throughout his life to recurring depressions. He believes that it introduced a note of desperation, a dark undertow in what had formerly been a much sunnier personality. This side of Innes, Watson says, was later hidden as much as possible from public view. He found, for example, that a lot of documents that ought to have been there were missing from the University of Toronto's collection of Innes's personal papers. When you looked at the archives, you would find uh, some letters with uh, references, for instance, to, please ignore my letter of last Tuesday, I was overwrought, I was under a lot of pressure, and I was seeing everything in really negative terms, uh, words to that effect. The only problem was there wasn't a letter of last Tuesday in the archives, and, and that material was quite complete. He was a bit of a pack rat and, and kept everything. Uh, there were quite a number of these cases, so I, I concluded finally that, in fact, uh, there had been someone who'd gone over the material and taken out uh, this type of material. That someone, logically, would have been Mary Quayle Innes, who donated her husband's papers to the university after his death. But whatever she may have removed from the record, it remains clear enough that Innes, like the rest of his generation, was deeply shaken by the war. And this distress was political as much as psychological. Canada had believed itself to be British and had therefore followed Britain to war in a spirit of blind loyalty. Volunteering in this spirit, Innes was not in any way prepared for what he later described as the insolence and brutality of his British officers. Judith Stamps teaches political theory at the University of Victoria and is the author of a forthcoming book on Innes called Unthinking Modernity, Innes, McLuhan, and the Frankfurt School. Just when he arrived, uh, he got the rather uh, shocking experience of realizing that he was being treated as a colonial by British officers. That was not something he was prepared for. He thought of himself as a Canadian, not a colonial. And he was treated in an extremely uh, contemptuous fashion, as were his colleagues, his fellow Canadians. 
and he suggested in his writing afterwards that he thought for sure that must have really hastened the the will to try and separate uh, England and Canada constitutionally because people had been so personally insulted. The idea that they would go there and fight and be treated as colonial inferiors was very deeply insulting to them. The haughtiness of his British officers gave Innes a first taste of what would become one of his great themes, empire and the fateful relationship it sets up between its margin and its center. It was a subject that would remain at the heart of his thinking for the rest of his life. In 1920, Harold Innes joined the Department of Political Economy at the University of Toronto. Earlier that year, he had completed a PhD in economics at the University of Chicago. There he had encountered the writings of the maverick American economist Thorsten Veblen. Veblen belonged to the historical or institutionalist school of economics, which had its roots in 19th century Germany. The English school of political economy had tended to approach economic life in the spirit of Newton's physics, treating people as fundamentally rational, markets as self-regulating machines, and prices as the real measure of the usefulness of things. The German school, from which Veblen had learned, refused to divorce economy from society in this way. Veblen, consequently, saw economics not as a freestanding science, but as a branch of history and anthropology. Economics, he argued, takes shape in the context of customs, techniques, and institutions which evolve historically. A final, timeless theory is therefore impossible. These were the general lines of Innes' approach. He was convinced that economic history gave him a tool which could be used to revise received economic theory. But meanwhile, says University of Toronto economist Abe Rothstein, he had to contend with the atmosphere in his new department. It was really a nest of British-trained scholars and Canadians who had been road scholars. And so the word came from on high, from Oxbridge, and it was the standard English orthodoxy. Alfred Marshall, John Stuart Mill, and certainly the predominance of Adam Smith. And so that was the tradition that Innes had to confront when he took it upon himself to really have a good look at Canada. The problem in that particular situation was that traditional economics has only two questions. How high is the price? How much is the quantity? It is said that's hardly of a very great help in understanding how this country was put together. He said it was put together as the consequence and the offshoot of staple products, natural resource products, and in sequence, the cod fisheries, the fur trade, the timber, and the wheat, they mark the history of the country. And he said, let's try a wide-angle approach to the economy, not simply a series of supply-demand things with price and quantity. What does a wide-angle perspective consist of? The three major components that feed into the economy, which are usually ignored directly. Ecology, 
our geographic inheritance, our resources, our climate, all the things that make Canada. Number one, ecology. Number two, technology. Those instruments that are used either for fishing or for fur trading, canoes, salted fish, racks, all of those things, very important feature. Thirdly, institutions. He knew very well that people had different ways of organizing themselves in the economy, that it was not a cookie-cutter model of supply and demand. It was a feet-on-the-ground economics. It was getting your hands dirty, a hands-on type of economics, rather than this kind of abstract formula approach which misses all the real interesting action. As A. Brodstein's description suggests, Innes pursued his studies not just in archives and libraries, but at the actual sites of economic activity in the country. He canoed the fur trade routes, visited mines and pulp mills throughout northern Ontario and Quebec, and toured the outports of Newfoundland. And everywhere he went, he talked to the fishermen and the trappers, the miners and mill workers. John Watson has compiled the record of these journeys. He was an intellectual whose, whose work was uh, informed by an intense study of where he came from. The travel schedules for the 20s and early 30s are just exhaustive. I mean, if you look at where he went and imagine how hard it was to get to those places in, in those days with the kind of transportation that existed... It, it really is a remarkable accomplishment and something that perhaps it's hard for intellectuals of today to understand that someone could be so rooted in direct first-hand experience of how the economy worked, how uh, ordinary people that were undertaking productive uh, activities, how their lives were. In 1930, Harold Innes published The Fur Trade in Canada, the book with which his name still remains most associated. In 400 sometimes sprawling pages, it details the history of the trade from the earliest days of New France right up to the time at which he was writing. In his preface, Innes remarks that the book arose initially because of his sense of the incompleteness of his study of the CPR. How, he had wondered, had Canada acquired the transcontinental unity that demanded a railroad in the first place? The fur trade answers the question. The area of Canada, Innes says, is the area encompassed by this trade. The northern half of North America remained British, he goes on, because of the importance of fur as a staple product. Innes saw, says University of Toronto economist Mel Watkins, that from the very beginning of its existence, Canada had been shaped by international forces. For Innes, it was clear you could never study a country like Canada by just studying Canada. Canada was always a periphery, a margin to a center. It was always part of an empire. And so you always had to understand that much of what made things happen in Canada originated outside of Canada. And that was what the fur trade was about. You had to also know all about the hat-making industry in France. It is an extraordinary story in a way that you would actually create this huge empire of New France, the French Empire in North America, around something as bizarre as the hat trade in, <laughs> in Paris. 
and uh, around these, you know, easily destroyed beavers, some, you know, somebody, a caricature of innocence to say Canada was created by chasing the beaver across Canada. The fur trade was a first attempt to create a truly Canadian economics, an economics which derived its laws from the history of the place rather than deriving the place from a set of all-purpose laws formulated in Britain. But it was a work that went far beyond what is conventionally called economics. It begins with an introductory essay on the habits of the beaver, proceeds with an account of the culture and techniques of the native people, and is sensitive throughout to the fundamental influence of the land itself. Innes is aware from the outset that he is describing the fateful encounter of two civilizations. It produced, he says, a disturbance disastrous to the native peoples and of profound importance to the Europeans. But though he recognizes how disruptive Europe's iron goods, diseases, and distilled spirits were to native societies, he never condescends to these societies or treats them as either static or passive. He portrays them rather as active and willing participants in the trade. He emphasizes the initial dependence of the Europeans on native techniques of travel and subsistence. And he recognizes throughout that the fur trade was a relationship between peoples and not just an exchange of goods. The Europeans, for example, were forced to engage in what Karl Polanyi later called administered trade. Prices were governed by political agreement, says A. Rothstein, rather than by purely commercial considerations. The idea that prices fluctuate is very much a function of a certain kind of institution, a market institution, a certain kind of mentality, a certain view of the economy. For the Indians, they had a different view. It was a non-market society. They did not have arm's length commercial relations, impersonal relations in the same way that we did. They never traded with anyone whom they didn't know, and they traded tribe to tribe, not person to person. And the Europeans were regarded as a tribe. And they, in turn, said, well, if we're going to trade, we've got to establish a relationship with you, an alliance, an agreement. And once we've done that, you're part of the family. And you don't introduce commercial considerations within that kind of broad extended family notion. And that then became the basis of a different mentality, a different approach, which was imposed by the Indians on the European companies and was consistently reported from the early days of the fur trade, approximately 1620. We have evidence of it going till 1880. This attitude toward prices. And if you tried to give an Indian less because the bottom had dropped out of the fur market in London and you couldn't afford to pay so much, he would be highly insulted and might paddle another couple of hundred miles away to another European power and get what he thought he was properly entitled to. He felt he was being taken for a ride if you said the price dropped. He didn't understand what that meant other than the fact that you were cheating him. Trading in North America, according to a fixed standard, while prices fluctuated in Europe, was one of the many peculiar difficulties of the fur business. The vast distances and lengthy time scales involved also imposed heavy demands on the trading companies. Economist Irene Spry was a colleague of Harold Innes's at the University of Toronto in the 1930s. You have to load up your canoes with trade goods 
and find some means of provisioning your crews and the uh, people who manned the, the fur trading posts when they were established, and you'd set off into the interior, and it might be seven years before you got your returns by uh, selling the furs that you collected in Europe. This long delay between a heavy initial investment and the expected return contributed to the generally high overhead cost of the fur business. High overheads, in turn, generated what Innes thought of as one of the most persistent features of Canada's continental economy, the tendency to monopoly, a Brodstein. Probably the single most dramatic thesis in the fur trade is that competition was short-lived, unstable, and precarious. When competition was tried in the French regime, that is in New France, the uh, various companies or individuals and companies generally ended up in a chaotic and confused state, just working at cross-purposes, and the whole thing collapsed. When you had competition between the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company, you found that they were putting posts virtually catty-corner from each other at the crossroads of rivers, both engaged in huge expenditures in shipping goods uh, right across the country, duplicate personnel, duplicate distribution systems, and in the end, occasionally, working with Indians at cross-purposes from each other, degenerating into violence and strong-arm tactics, a clear indication that it was an unstable situation with unnecessarily high overheads for both of them. It became obvious that what was needed was some kind of joint combination of the two companies, and in 1821, they merged, and they called it the Hudson's Bay Company, but from then on, one network went right across the country. This tendency to monopoly was one of the features of the Canadian economy which grew out of its unique circumstances. It was an economy, Innes found, quite unlike the idealizations of economic theory. Neoclassical economics pictured a closed system in which supply was smoothly and continuously adjusted to demand. Nature, Alfred Marshall had said, makes no jumps. What Innes was observing in the fur trade resembled nothing so much as a series of unsteady jumps. Beaver populations collapsed from overhunting, driving the trade into new territories. Transportation technology changed. War broke out. Sudden, discontinuous change seemed to be the rule rather than the exception. The unique conditions of the fur trade, in Innes's view, demanded centralized political and financial institutions. This was what he called the bias, or imprint, of the staple. And it was Innes's opinion, A. Brodstein says, that the institutions which resulted tended to persist. An institutional framework was laid out in the fur trade, which was re-echoed, surprisingly enough, in industrial Canada. What I think he meant was the tendency toward centralized, large-scale organizations. He referred to the fact that the fur trade chain of posts running across the country was later echoed by the Eatons of the 1930s, by the United Church that pulled together the churches right across the country, by other similar tendencies in Canada because of 
large geographies, small number of people to, in order to overcome the problems of overhead, centralize the operations. Consequently, much of industry is still affected by that, and I think that was the broad implications of his intention of the fur trade legacy. By the time the fur trade was published in 1930, Harold Innes had already set to work on a second, even more massive study of an international economy. His new subject was the North Atlantic cod fisheries from the 15th century to the 20th. The focus was still on staples, but this time on a staple whose exploitation had made very different demands on the society in question. Innes had found in the continental economy of furs a bias towards rigidity, centralization, and monopoly. The maritime economy of fish he found to be virtually its opposite, flexible, decentralized, and diverse. James Bickerton is a professor of political science at St. Francis Xavier University in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. You had a wide range of, of different producers. You had a wide range of different techniques used in the fishery, a lot of different nations uh, who were engaged in exploiting the same resource. The markets were extremely diverse. Dried fish for Catholic, foreign and Catholic markets, uh, lower quality fish for, for the West Indies markets, fresh fish uh, for other markets. In terms of economic control of the fishery, there was no centralized economic control. Anybody could get into the fishery if they had a skiff and a net and uh, a port to sail out of. Of course, this changed over time, but for centuries, the fishery fundamentally remained of that nature that Innes described it, flexible, diverse, decentralized. So I think that uh, it really opened up a whole different international political economy for Innes, one which wasn't monopolistic in the way that the fur trade was. Innes's studies of the Atlantic fishery made him aware of the contradictions within the Canadian economy. Canada was actually composed, he concluded, of a series of regional economies of varying characters and varying interests. The difficulty of looking at Canada as a whole, he said in 1935, is almost insuperable. His maritime studies also produced in him, says James Bickerton, a keen admiration for the civilization which emerged in Nova Scotia in the first half of the 19th century. This was a period um, when the international economy was largely shaped by trade, and especially seaborne trade, in commodities. Uh, and it was a period, of course, uh, when the saline vessel was the dominant mode of transportation. And I suppose that Nova Scotia was very well adapted to that kind of economy. They had uh, the natural resources, they had the, the skilled tradesmen, and they had the location within the British Empire that provided them with many advantages, which they exploited to good effect. I mean, they had the fourth largest sailing fleet in the world in the 1860s. Uh, they were prosperous. Many fortunes were made. Very vital community life, which produced uh, a great cultural uh, and political flourishing. And Innes uh, admired this greatly and uh, almost romantic uh, about it, waxes romantic about it in his works. In part, I think this is because Innes uh, was very attracted to the idea of, of a, 
a stable society, one in which uh, technology and culture seemed to be in harmony with one another and in which there was an integration of economic activities with local community life, in which local communities indeed controlled their fate and owned their own resources. And, and Nova Scotia during the commercial era came very close to that romantic ideal. This era began to wane around the time that Nova Scotia joined Confederation in 1867. In his thought that Nova Scotia's statesmen had sound practical reasons for joining Canada, but he also recognized the considerable costs that were involved. Canada provided Nova Scotia with a political ally in its economic competition with New England, but in exchange, the new province was eventually forced to accept the high federal tariffs which made it a protected market for high-cost central Canadian manufacturers. The tariff was the centerpiece of John A. Macdonald's national policy, and by the time Innes became acquainted with the province in the 1930s, the government of Nova Scotia had decided it was time to change it. The Premier, Angus L. Macdonald, convened a royal commission to consider, quote, the effect of the fiscal and trade policies of the Dominion of Canada on the province of Nova Scotia, and he invited Innes to be one of the commissioners. Innes uh, agreed with the other commissioners uh, who, who thought that the, the uh, national policy had detrimental effects on the province and therefore there needed to be some sort of fiscal, a new fiscal deal. But he took a much broader view than the other commissioners, and so much so that uh, he felt compelled to write his own report, one which was complementary to the commission's report. And in that report, uh, Innes does a much more sweeping analysis of the impact of the national policy on the province and, and what was necessary uh, should the province uh, reverse the, its economic decline. Innes's fellow commissioners were interested in free trade as an alternative to Canadian protectionism. Innes, typically, found their approach a little too abstract and theoretical. Free trade, for him, was an application of ideology, when what was wanted was intelligence. He argued instead, says James Bickerton, for a careful modification of the existing arrangements. But he did speak forcefully in favor of decentralization of federal power. One of the important parts of the argument uh, had to do with what he was most familiar with, which was the fishery. And that was that uh, control of the fishery should be provincial. That uh, he thought that the federal government, uh, its interference in the fishery had been detrimental, that it would be better to have provincial control over that industry. More generally, he, he argued that there had to be a, a, uh, a change in the national policy to make it more intensive and regional in character. That uh, obviously the tariff and uh, federal fiscal policies were a great burden on the province, and the province needed to have more autonomy from national policy. Uniform national policies, in Innes's view, could not serve diverse regional economies. We are obliged, he wrote, to adopt more refined methods and set up more delicate machinery. This seemed to Innes to require a measured decentralization of power in the context of a national community of interest. But as the depression of the 30s proceeded, his approach was pushed aside by the emerging consensus in favor of a consolidation of federal power in a new welfare state. 
The cod fisheries and the fur trade were Innes's most detailed studies of Staples' trades, but he also looked carefully at metals and pulp and paper and was aware of the cases of timber in the 19th century and wheat in the 20th. Gradually, an overall portrait emerged of an economy based on such staple exports. Its main features were a recurring debt crisis resulting from the state's role in building the infrastructure for staple production, external control as a result of dependence on imported capital and imported technology, a constant threat of resource depletion, and extreme vulnerability to international business cycles. Canada, Innes said, was a storm center to the international economy and liable, in another characteristically violent metaphor, to be boiled in the oil of international competition. Later scholars would describe this pattern of development as the staple trap. Innes never used the term, but he was certainly aware of the pitfalls involved. Contemporaries of Innes's, like W.A. McIntosh at Queen's, saw Canada as a society well along the same road the United States had followed to industrial maturity. Innes, says Irene Spry, was more skeptical. Bill McIntosh of Queen's had thought of uh, finding a staple which gave you an economic basis from which you developed gradually towards economic maturity. In this writing in the middle of the depression of the 30s, realized that being dependent on staples meant that you were terribly vulnerable. Because if you depended on the staple and then you got either some uh, climatic uh, problem such as the drought of the dirty 30s or a change in market demand in the metropolis which you'd been supplying, then you will be in great difficulties. The whole essence of a staple is that it dominates the economy. Your whole economy is geared to a particular pattern of production in order to get as large an output of staple exports as possible. And if you uh, sink all your uh, productive capabilities into one kind of output, whether it's a commercial uh, output uh, or whether it's an industrial output, then you are in difficulties if the, the whole situation suddenly changes. The Depression of the 30s brought just such a sudden and violent collapse in the Canadian economy. This created an urgent demand for a solution to the problem that was causing such misery. Innes was tentative. We know very little about the solution to so-called economic problems, he wrote to historian Arthur Lower, and there is little point in concealing our ignorance by loud talk. He said much the same when he addressed the Liberal Conservative Summer School in Newmarket in 1933. I am sufficiently humble in the face of the extreme complexity of my subject to know that I am not competent to understand the problems, much less the solution. This view was not popular with Innes's colleagues on the left. Historian Frank Underhill described economists like Innes as the garage mechanics of capitalism. Mel Watkins, who's receptive to Innes in many other respects, 
is inclined, in this case, to agree. People kept insisting they wanted answers. And I must say I'm very sympathetic to people who would say that. I was born in the 30s. I had some memories of what that was, was like. And, you know, what Innes said was, uh, no, we don't have answers. We're, we, we have to do more basic research before we can say what can be done. Now, that's a, well, if that's what he believed, fair enough. But what happened, I think, with Innes was he took that, that very powerful Staples model that he had in which m much of what happens happens outside of Canada. And then he said, there's not much you can do by way of policy in these kinds of economies. You just got to wait it out. He, you know, you can find passages where he, frankly, doesn't sound all that different from Herbert Hoover, or he doesn't sound all that different from, you know, John Crispo today, saying, well, you got this huge debt and you got this tremendously open economy, and under these circumstances, you can't do very much about it. Uh, I think that economists, social scientists in general, have to deal with the actual problems that exist in the world when they exist. And that to not be helpful in the 30s is to truly not be helpful. Innes was definitely scornful of economists who he thought compromised their academic integrity by making proposals that went far beyond what their actual knowledge of the case warranted. Throughout the 30s, he showed considerable talent for invective and denouncing them as hot gospelers of truth, political adventurers, and traveling salesmen peddling nostrums. But behind these sometimes wild attacks lay a sober and deeply considered account of the destiny of Canadian scholarship. Innes had set out in the 20s to address the question which Northrop Fry later formulated as, where is here? He believed that the answer to this question could only come from a patient and detailed study of the Canadian experience. And he thought that this study was still in its infancy when the Depression struck. What he saw his fellow economists doing in the 30s was reaching for the ready-made explanations they found in Marxism, British Fabian Socialism, and the contemporary writings of John Maynard Keynes. And he feared, says John Watson, that this reversion to old-world models would threaten the peculiarly Canadian science in which he had invested such toil and such hope. If a country couldn't think for itself, then it really couldn't be independent. Uh, because decision-making in an independent country had to be based on, he felt, um, a, a, a worldview or a mindset that had been developed there and that was particularly appropriate for the, the context of that country. And that's why I think he was so keen to criticize in Marx, Keynes, and Fabianism. He viewed those as distractions because they was, were really methodologies or perspectives that were developed in the, at the center of empire and distracted scholars who were trying their best to bring along their country and, and develop a new worldview from pursuing uh, richer avenues. Innes's hope for Canadian scholarship was only one of the reasons why he satirized the pretensions of his fellow scholars so bitterly during the 1930s. His insistence on the limitations of economists, himself included, was also based on a vivid sense of how quickly a living study could be reduced to a set of deadly simplifications. Innes saw Canada's story as complex 
and contradictory, and he felt that wise policy required that it be understood as a whole. Once politicians grasped this story, intelligent action would follow easily enough. If they could not grasp it, no amount of unsolicited advice was going to make any difference. Daniel Drach of York University has been the main organizer of the Innes Centenary and is now at work on a biography. He tried to take, I think, the longer-term view. So you don't get out of Innes a strong set of policy alternatives, but what you get is a very detailed analysis of why the Canadian economy was so vulnerable to these global swings, why the different regions of Canada often found themselves pitted against each other. He tried to, to f explain the, the costs that came with high levels of foreign ownership and foreign investment. So what he was always saying in a hundred different ways, markets are volatile, open economies are open to these rapid changes in the international economy, and that if you want to have a stronger economy, you must deepen domestic market, you must strengthen domestic industry. Governments have to develop instruments that uh, better reflect the, the needs of Canada and less and less expose the Canadian development and growth trajectory to uh, such wholesale reliance on uh, foreign markets. So, I mean, he wasn't a protectionist. He said the balance had to be different and that, that there wasn't some automatic shift from resources to a stronger domestic economy. This had to come out of government policy, which began to understand that the more you borrow the more on foreign markets, the more debt and deficit Canadian governments had, that they would be subject to severe restraints. So this made him into a nationalist, strengthen Canadian economic space and lessen reliance on, on these distant invisible forces which shape the uh, destiny of Canada. This is what Daniel Drach calls the Innes story. It's not a systematic proposal which can be found somewhere in Innes's writings as chapter and verse, but a set of implications which Drach draws out of the work. Innes was not a systematic thinker. In fact, he distrusted system, regarding it as a corruption of the virtue he most prized, freedom of inquiry. He also had a deep distrust of power. All his hints at a way out of the difficulties of the Depression suggest practices that resist consolidation as power. He stresses the importance of flexibility, diversity, and free, uncommitted intelligence. He may have wanted to strengthen Canadian economic space, as Daniel Drach argues, but he emphatically did not want to strengthen the federal government, which he claimed, in one of his wilder moments, already resembled the Soviet Politburo. This was why he was generally opposed to the ideas of John Maynard Keynes. Keynes proposed a much more intensively managed economy in which government spending would smooth out capitalism's catastrophic ups and downs. Innes called this approach a palace revolution, and he was strongly opposed when the Royal Sirwa Royal Commission presented the first plans for the application of these ideas to the Canadian state. The commission was created by Mackenzie King's government in the later 30s to look into the troubled relationship between the federal government and the provinces. Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta, fearing a centralizing design, 
all refused to participate. And so the report ended up, in Innes's opinion, as a blueprint for the renewal of bureaucratic power in Ottawa. Robin Neal is professor of economics at Carleton University and the author of A New Theory of Value, a study of Innes's economics. A number of people who had, as someone else has said, had bitten the apple of Keynesian economics wrote that report with the view uh, to inaugurating Keynesian policies, very centralizing policies in which somehow the government picks up where private enterprise fails. So Innes is saying this is really not a report which reflects the problems of Canada. This is a report which reflects the views of those people who sat in Keynes Seminar in Cambridge in the 1930s. And, and what's it got to do with Canada? He saw the problem in Canada as one of government interference Government builds the canals, they overbuild the canals, and then there's a depression because they've got too many canals. So how do they solve this depression? They've got external markets, they can't do anything about that. So they build a railroad, they boom it. See, they solve one depression by overexpanding by another investment boom, which creates more excess capacity. And, and then what happens in the 1930s? The railroads are overbuilt, and they were massively overbuilt. And that whole railroad economy became obsolescent as the automobile and the electric dynamo uh, came into play. And so the steam engine is gone. They have to restructure the whole economy. And what they should have done was just let the damn thing restructure itself, or at least so Schumpeter would say, and perhaps Innes would say, but at any rate, they decided not to do that. They decided they would get the government in there to boom it again. This time, not by you know building one big project like the canal or the railroads, but by expanding everything. The government will support economic activity throughout the whole economy. This is you know like the masterpiece of folly. The solution to these problems have made really in the long run made the problems worse. And now they're going to generalize this solution through the whole economy. And he attacks this thing, subspatiate temporis, you know, uh, from the point of view of time, because in the short run, this is a solution. But in the long run, you're just generating a bigger problem. The Royal Sirwa Commission presented the first faint outlines of the welfare bureaucracy that was eventually built in Ottawa. Innes's objection to the centralizing, free-spending, Keynesian approach that was involved was part of his general alienation from the direction economics was taking. Innes had favored a style of inquiry that was historical in its methods and ethical in its orientation. Economics instead became increasingly specialized, mathematical, and managerial in its outlook. In the years directly after his death in 1952, his influence as an economic thinker endured only amongst the older scholars who had been his colleagues. Then, curiously, in the 60s, Innes was revived by the New Left, both as a nationalist and as a theorist of Canadian underdevelopment. This offended some of Innes's old friends, who claimed, as was said earlier of Marx, that Innes was no Innesian. This may have been so, but in the larger sense, the reconstruction of Innes on the left testifies to the breadth and fertility of his thought. Innes thought on a large scale, both as an historian and as an ethical critic of economics. 
in the new era of globalization and free trade, he's probably due for another revival. On Ideas, you've been listening to the first of three programs by David Cayley on the work of Harold Innes. The series continues next week at this time with a program about Innes's work on communications. Technical production of tonight's program was by Lorne Tulk. The production assistants were Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. We would like to thank Daniel Drach of York University for his help in the preparation of these programs, and also Bill Buxton and the communications departments of Concordia University, the University of Montreal, and the University of Quebec at Montreal. Some of the research for these programs was done at a conference jointly organized by these three departments. To order a transcript of tonight's program, call Radio Works at this toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. And for a free reading list on Innis, write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio for Between the Covers, following the 10 o'clock news.